0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle.
2: This is Bloomberg Intelligence. The
3: new tools that a Metaverse can bring allows you to create more immersive content.
2: Companies are beginning to sell less oil, more electrons. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries.
3: The supply chain breakdown is
1: combining with labor shortages. Will Eastern manufacturers continue to dominate, or will there be a renewed interest in Western manufacturers?
2: Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
4: Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets.
5: Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide.
4: And today, we're going to take a look at a new tax in Europe that could actually level the playing field in manufacturing.
5: Plus, how clean energy may not necessarily mean green energy.
4: But first, it is one of the biggest deals in the software sector Ever. Broadcom buying VMware for $61 billion, a 44% premium in that record tech deal. We're going to get a lot of detail on this from the micro to the macro. So let's start broad here with Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Software Analyst. Um, Anurag, if I was to take away one thing from this deal, whether it be price, valuation, uh, what would it be?
6: For me, it's the importance of software. You know, at the end of the day, that's.
4: I mean, you are a software software analyst. So, I mean. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you, ten years ago,
6: and in fact, Paul is the one who gave me the software coverage. I think software was about three hundred billion in total, you know, spending. Now it's over seven hundred, and I won't be surprised that in the next six, seven years, it is going to easily be over a trillion, um, just because the. This is exactly where bulk of the spending is going from all enterprises. You
5: know, Anurag, it's, you know, smart guys like you and the Bloomberg technology, Bloomberg intelligence technology team like Mandeep Singh and Jin Ho, you guys have been talking about the cloud for a long time here. And this is a deal about the cloud here. Is cloud still the growth story in tech?
6: Yes, uh, Paul, it is the growth story. It is going to be the growth story for another decade. We just published a massive report that shows that cloud is only about 21 percent of total tech spending, despite being around for over 20 years. And, and the reason for that is there's still a lot of legacy footprint of legacy technologies from all the older companies that have been in existence, and they need to upgrade.
4: So do they upgrade and outsource it, or do they take the time and money and upgrade it and do it in-house? Like, where are we learning how that shakes out?
6: So I think it's a bit of a both. So it, if if it is a non-critical workload, it's okay for you to you know send it to an Amazon or a Microsoft or a Google. If it's a critical workload, you may have to redesign your internal uh, IT departments or internal IT infrastructure. Over there, you're still going to be using a bit of technology from the Hyperscale or the large cloud providers, but then you're going to use you know, cloud or software products from the likes of Red Hat or VMware or even Microsoft to upgrade your internal system. Anurag, just broadly
5: defined, it seems like your industry, the technology industry, wasn't really, I don't know, that impacted by this past two years of this pandemic. I mean, the, the tech spend cycles are so long and they're so... I guess in demand, There's such a, it's kind of like table stakes for so many industries, you have to spend a lot on tech. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you saw in terms of overall spending levels?
6: Yeah, it was, I and mean, we expect that trend to continue. I think this is the biggest difference in what we are seeing right now compared to the previous cycles, because what used to happen was in the old recession days, the answer was, well, we're going into a recession, so let's start cutting tech spending a little bit um, so that we can you know, curtail some costs. Now, you know, don't take me wrong, a little bit of that is still going to happen uh, in the next recession or in the next 12 to 24 months, but we think that's going to impact more of the legacy products. That's going Mm -hmm. to have an impact on some of the hardware spending or hardware upgrades. But areas such as security and cloud you're not going to see a massive pullback.
4: Does this mean that this industry isn't as cyclical as it once was?
6: Well, the, as a, in totality, the tech space could be, which means we, could, we will still see the ups and downs in the semiconductor world, in the hardware world, or even in the consulting practices of some of these companies. But when it comes to areas like cloud, as I said, if something was growing 20%, maybe it grows only 15 to 16, mm-hmm. but we're still going to see very good growth.
5: Hey, Anurag, you know, I'm going to put my banker hat on here. And as I looked at this Broadcom VMware deal, a big, big deal, so I was calculating the fees that my banker friends were going to get. Hmm. But I also recognize that maybe one of the reasons Broadcom stepped up here is it was a relative bargain, you know, relative to where it was even at year end. Do you think we're going to see more M&A maybe driven by price in the tech space?
6: Yeah, we we also recently published another note that says, you know, we have seen a massive decline in valuations over the past six months. But our discussion is, you know, please don't expect any bargains because we have seen certain deals that have happened just in the cloud space, and they have gone out at a very, very healthy multiple. Um, there were a couple of deals by private equity, such as Thomas Bravo took Anaplan for private at a forward, uh, you know, mm. sales multiple of about 13 times. We looked at about top 60 companies They are now trading at a forward multiple of about six times. So, you know, we still think there is going to be deal activity, but, you know, please don't expect any bargain.
4: Who are some of the acquirers? Like, who really needs to beef up this area for themselves? So, when we looked at all
6: the large companies, a few names that came to our mind were IBM, Adobe, Salesforce, SAP, Workday, and ServiceNow. So, those are the ones that we think could be the ones buyers now microsoft and oracle would also be in those lists but they already have two very large deals pending activision by microsoft and sooner by oracle and then the other two companies that have the capacity to buy stuff in the software world are amazon and google but we are excluding them for our wish list or, or our list of potential acquirers because there's a lot of regulatory pressure on those two companies.
4: Yeah, and they got other problems right now, <laughs> uh, to be sure. Hey, Anurag, thanks a lot. We really appreciate Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence a senior software analyst.
5: Coming up on the program, we're going to dig deeper on that big tech deal: Broadcom, VMware.
4: You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence. Through BIGO in the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And
5: I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Big big deal in the tech space. Broadcom
5: buying VMware for sixty-one billion dollars in a record tech deal. Certainly an active week in tech. Let's bring in our senior tech analyst Wujin Ho. He covers all things hardware for Bloomberg intelligence. So Wooj, a big big deal here. Give us a sense of maybe what Broadcom tell us what Broadcom kind of does and kind of what they're trying to morph into with this acquisition
7: sure uh thanks for having me on uh paul so so Broadcom is one of these uh, leading um analog chip makers uh they make chips for uh networking gear uh they make chips for the apple iphone they make chips for cable modems right and and um you know in, in the past it's a, a very uh cyclical industry mm-hmm. so what the ceo has embarked upon uh, back in twenty eighteen uh, is um, you know uh, a diversification strategy. They acquired a company called CA and then uh, if you fast forward a year they acquired Symantec, a security company and then today um, they decided to further diversify the business so software becomes 50 percent of total sales uh, with this uh, $61 billion VMware acquisition.
4: So VMware is a cloud company. Was Broadcom in the cloud at all?
7: So VMware makes software that helps enable companies Bridge their way to the cloud, and uh, one of the uh, chips that Broadcom makes—they're uh, they, they're actually the leading chip provider for networking gear for companies like Amazon Web Services, um, mm. uh, Microsoft uh, Azure Cloud, as well as Google. Right? So, so they—they they are the de facto standard for the cloud. So, you know, th- this is actually a really good question, Alex, uh, because um, they're able to take a lot of their chip DNA and probably take a lot of the the knowledge from VMware and merge it together uh, over the long term.
5: So, this is a big premium to, you know, just a few weeks ago before Bloomberg News had initially reported on this deal earlier. Give us a sense of valuation. Is this a case where maybe... Broadcom said, boy, the Nasdaq's pulled back more than 20%. A lot of these stocks are cheaper. I'm going to just kind of sneak in there and see if I can grab this thing. Because they did pay a big premium.
7: Yeah. On uh, Friday's close, yeah, it's, it's, uh, what, a 45% premium? Um, But if if we think about it uh, from uh, other uh, typical deal valuations, uh, and and we looked at it fairly closely, um, I don't think Broadcom overpaid for the deal uh, from a, a P.E. basis. Uh, it's a 20 times uh, forward earnings. On an enterprise value to sales basis, it's uh, about uh, five times uh, forward uh, sales. Now, we comped it to uh, other large cap, mature software companies that are cash generating. And the average was actually spot on. So so quite frankly, if anything, you know, I think Broadcom paid a fairly fair price. Mm-hmm. It's just that the market has slid so much. And um, I think this was uh, when uh, they thought uh, it was time to strike.
4: Uh, I can imagine that other cloud software makers are going to look at this deal and be a little nervous. There is a go-shop period. Do we expect other bidders to come in? And if not, Who are going to be the competitors after Broadcom swallows up VMware?
7: There are a couple of names that are floating around who may be interested. And I'm not 100% convinced that that there will be another acquirer. But the one company that I did flag was Cisco Systems. Cisco has been trying to go on this... Uh, a similar diversification strategy from their their hardware business to more of a soft to morph into more of a software uh, business.
5: Two big companies here, sixty billion dollar acquisition. Give us a sense. Would you have kind of maybe regulatory hurdles here. Is there anything that could put a monkey wrench into this deal?
7: Well, um, so so they're setting a timeline of uh, one year to get the deal closed. Uh, they they mentioned on the call there weren't there not anything there wasn't anything that that was really flagged on the call. Uh, that that would uh, ring alarm bells. Uh, we did. Uh, I did speak with uh, our, our regulatory analyst uh, colleague Jen Rhee, and there wasn't anything um, uh, that really stood out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there might be some overlap, um, but if there are any overlaps, they're probably going to be
4: small. Um, okay, so let's pretend like it goes through. Um, what are there going to be the big competitors? Like, whose lunch will the combined company be stealing?
7: well the, the the big competitor here and I wouldn't I, I don't know if they'll be entirely stealing, uh, but the big competitor here would probably be uh, someone like IBM Red Hat mm. um, and also open source uh, cloud software but but IBM Red Hat would probably uh, be the the one company that goes head to head in terms of the the enterprise slash open source slash uh, cloud software. Now there are a lot of other small uh, software companies uh, that that are out there um, that uh, VMware competes with. Now, now that being said, however, um, the major concern uh, from the VMware customers is that um, Broadcom may shed so much of its R and D that they may be uncompetitive in the in, in the future over the long term because uh, Broadcom is not putting in the necessary development uh, dollars to drive new innovations. So. Um, no if if, if if Broadcom's going to milk it for cash flow, then it may it may just wither over the long, long term and mm-hmm. allow these some of these smaller guys to fill a void that that, that uh, VMware uh, exited out. so we'll we'll have to see how it plays out of the next It's actually out of the over the next five to ten years.
5: Hey which uh, Bloomberg News also reported this week alongside the announcement of this deal that Broadcom's going to come to market. Uh, thirty-two billion dollars of debt commitments. The banks have already committed to it. How does the balance sheet for Broadcom look? Kind of pro forma here. Are you concerned about that at all?
7: Yeah. So, so um, uh, my my associate and I actually uh, ran ran the balance sheet analysis uh, here. You know, uh, they they actually have a, a fairly healthy balance sheet. They they've been bringing it down uh, uh, quite. Nicely uh, prior to the deal, uh, on on a forward EBITDA basis, right now, uh, I'm sorry, on, on a net debt to EBITDA basis, it's about uh, four 1.4 times. Uh, post deal, it's probably going to be about 2.5, 2.6 times uh, leverage ratio, um, and, and uh, they're going to still be able to keep their um, uh, uh, their investment grade rating here. Um, now, if, if we if we think about it from a cash flow perspective they're going to be generating roughly about $25 billion post-post uh, deal. And that's going to still allow them to do a couple of things. One, uh, bring down their debt at right. a fairly aggressive uh, fashion. Two, maintain their dividend. Three, they also announced a $10 billion uh, share purchase, repurchasing nice. program. So if that's not a, a confidence in the cash flow going forward, yep. I don't know what is.
5: All right, that's good stuff. As always, uh, Wu Jin-ho, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst.
4: All right, coming up on the program, we're going to take a look at a new tax in Europe that could level the playing field in manufacturing.
5: You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney.
4: And I'm Alex Steele. It is 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
5: We're here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence Analysts, covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide.
4: As earnings keep on coming out, the big question becomes, which companies are getting hit by supply-side issues and which companies are getting hit by demand destruction issues? Now, some of the agricultural equipment companies are kind of right in the middle of that. They have their own supply chain issue, and also farmers are getting really hurt on their uh, margins, so it's hard for them to go buy and spend a lot of money on big ag equipment. So let's get the view from that and sort of what do we, expect over the next six to 12 months with Chris Ciolino, Bloomberg Intelligence Industrial Analyst. Chris, good to chat with you. Where are the guys like Deer and Caterpillar in the middle of the demand cycle?
3: There's certainly no demand destruction out there. Uh, I think one of the resounding themes that we heard from uh, earnings season was that there has been no slowdown in demand. Demand, uh, The demand backdrop is still intact. This is a supply-constrained market and probably will be for the balance of the year. Backlogs are at record levels. Orders remain robust, Um, so there really is no signs of demand slowing whatsoever. It's now a function of can the supply chain keep up, and will the end user still continue to take these price increases?
5: So, Chris, give us a sense of the supply chain. What are some of the big areas where, you know, the big the caterpillars and the deers of the world are really having some problems?
3: It's everywhere. Um, You know, earlier in the year we saw semiconductors being the big constraint. That seems to have improved slightly here in the beginning of this year, but now we're hearing it's everything else. It's wire harnesses, it's pumps, it's very broad-based, and and it's in no one particular geographic area. Mm. And remember, you you need all the components to make a a truck or a tractor, so it doesn't take much to to hold up production. Uh, What we're seeing is a lot of these companies will Uh, run the equipment through the line um, and move it off to the side just waiting for those final components and then they have to run it back through to uh, once the final components arrive so the factory overhead absorption is terrible right now which is part Mm -hmm. of the issue that you're seeing on the margin line along with the the higher input and material cost.
4: I know you said demand was super strong but farmers um, are running out of a lot of things. Like Their margins are getting really squeezed. Yes, I know the ag prices are high, but their input costs are so, so high. Would Do we expect demand destruction from the farmers at any point?
3: We started to see farmer sentiment soften earlier this year, uh, particularly after the, um, the Russia invasion of Ukraine um, and, and fertilizers being kind of right in the center of that. Um, it seems to have stabilized right now. Um, at the end of the day, if crop prices are high, farmers are going to be making money, um, and typically they do spend on equipment. Um, So so long as we're in this elevated commodity price environment, which we anticipate to persist for at least the next couple of years, just given the uh, supply-demand dynamics, particularly coming out of of the Russia and Ukraine. um, We also have some weather uh, issues in in North and South America. We had a late spring here as well. So the the backdrop for the farmer, and crop prices still continues to be unbelievably strong. Um, yes, input costs are going up, but some of these new, more advanced, technologically advanced machines um, could help offset some of those higher input costs. They're more fuel efficient, they use less fertilizer, um, they're more productive, so it, there are some offsets there.
5: One of the things we're hearing, I guess, in the automobile manufacturing industry is they're not going to go back to the days where they made 17 18 million cars and then lots were flooded with cars and you go in and, and haggle f- for a deal is that a similar type scenario in the equipment business if I'm a farmer and I kind of go onto the lot in Iowa and I am I going to have my pick of you know 10 or 15 or 20 uh, tractors and then I can kind of haggle for a deal
3: I think those days are gone hmm. I think very similar to the auto space um, inventories are if not at record lows near record lows Um, And I think a lot of companies would prefer to run with the leaner inventories. It helps one from a pricing perspective. Um, But, yeah, I I think we're looking at a a longer term, a more leaner um, dealer channel. Um, And listen, they want more equipment on their lots because the demand is strong now and they can sell it. But I don't think we're going back to prior days of having lots filled with equipment.
4: Yeah, it's like a whole different cyclical journey then with these guys. Um, I, Okay, so then, I guess going forward, wh- how quickly are these companies saying that the supply issues that they have everywhere will be resolved? Like you mentioned, the semis have already felt a little bit of relief.
3: Yeah, you know, the expectation at the start of the year was it should progressively or gradually improve as the year progresses. And I think those expectations have been totally walked back this quarter, I think universally across the machinery sector, the expectation is that supply challenges will persist for the balance of this year at least. If you look at some of like the implied guidance for the, the back half of the year, no one's really anticipating this big top line um, acceleration. So I think expectations of any meaningful improvement are kind of out the window at, at this point.
4: Hey Chris, thanks so much. Great to catch up with you. Chris Cialino, Bloomberg Intelligence Industrial Analyst.
5: All right, coming up on the program, a new carbon tax may cost importers billions in the European Union.
4: Oh, goody. Okay, you're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
5: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and
0: this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade.
2: This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Hey,
4: everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, One of the biggest issues globally is inflation. And nowhere do you see that in a more prominent way than the inflation that we're seeing in Europe. Now, it could actually get maybe a little worse. And that's because we're dealing with a carbon border adjustment tax. Let's get more on this with Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Clelia Imperiali. Clelia, the carbon border adjustment tax. First of all, what is it? So,
9: indeed, this is a very fascinating initiative in the trade and taxation area because the CBAM, which stands for um, uh, EU carbon adjustment mechanism, would be the very first transnational carbon tax ever adopted by any country of the world. And, uh, and its aim is really to complement the EU domestic carbon tax scheme, and to close, one of the major shortcomings of, uh, of the system, which is that domestic producers currently face um, a somehow unfair competition from um, products imported from outside the block, Because while domestic producers, EU domestic producers face increasing prices under the the EU ETS scheme, um, they often compete with imported products that are not subject to any carbon cost at all in their countries of origin. This has been um, a major problem for the EU ETS and has prompted, uh, can continue triggering in the future, what is called carbon leakage. That is a dynamic uh, to relocate outside the union in an attempt really to bypass the EU um, carbon costs. So what the system wants to do is to close this uh, loophole and to put the price on the emissions that are embedded in the European imports. So in a way to match the carbon price that would have been paid if those products imported in the EU had been produced within the Union.
5: What countries within the European Union perhaps are more at risk uh, or more exposure to this type of tax?
9: To answer to this question, we really have to look at um, which are the major um, partners, uh, so exporters to the EU. And uh, for the sectors... covered by the initial proposal by the European Commission, which is not being adopted yet, we can see that Russia and China would be among the most commonly affected countries. And for Russia in particular, accounts for a larger share of um, of products like fertilizers. 30% of the fertilizers imported by uh, the union um, come from Russia and similar percentage, 17% are held by, by China when it comes to aluminum and steel. Uh, so this would be uh, initially the countries that would be mostly affected. But just to, I want to remind here that that's the, the initial proposal will cover a very limited um, number of commodities. And this list, uh, so which are aluminum, iron and steel, fertilizers, and cement, but this list is meant to, um, expand in the future, uh, and cover also, um, indirect emissions because the initial proposal will cover only direct ones as the, uh, the system comes full in place mm-hmm. after.
4: Well, how much how much is this going to cost companies? And I started off the segment talking about inflation. If it's going to cost companies billions of euros to deal with this, it's not like you can just go and find an aluminum mine somewhere in the middle of (laughs) Europe. So I wonder how inflationary this is going to be. What kind of numbers are you guys running?
9: Yeah, so um, the the variable really to 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 calculate the co- the potential cost is really uh, the the emissions embedded and the uh, the, the not the uh, the tons of um, CO two emitted uh, in the production of those goods. And of course, this is not a. a Need the number uh, to estimate because most countries actually don't have to. Um, uh, and Companies in many countries are not on the obligation to report those numbers. Um, so what we use in our model um, is um, we, we we try to uh, use the carbon intensities of the uh, largest companies in the countries so that account for more than five percent of uh, export to the EU, and then we've um, calculated the cost and three potential uh, e carbon price. And EOETS um, carbon price scenarios so of about 50, 75 and 100 euros per tonne. And um, um, according to our calculations for the sectors so far considered, which I mentioned before, we're talking about a, a minimum of over 2 billion uh, euros per year, the maximum of over 4 billion per year. Now, one thing I want to I say here is that um, this is a, um, a tax which uh, like um, most trade measures, will be like a tariff, will be paid by importers. So the companies that are actually, uh, while this aff- and directly affects the, expo- the exports from the countries that we mentioned before, the companies that will actually raise the price will be um, EU, and a- mostly energy, construction, and agri food companies that are the main users of the
4: mm-hmm.
9: uh, emission-intensive materials that are targeted by. By the, the mechanism
4: so mm-hmm. far. Um, good distinction. It'll be interesting to see uh, how, how this plays out. Uh, Clelia, thank you very much. Clelia Imperiali, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Industrial Analyst. All right, now let's turn our attention to the employment picture in Europe. We kind of dabbled in inflation. Let's get the read on jobs. And for that, we're going to take a look at earnings from Randstad. Randstad is headquartered in the Netherlands and provides temporary employment services. Ashan Torabali covers the company for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ashan, what did we learn from earnings from Randstad?
1: Well, um, so Randstad um, is the largest staffing company globally. um, And they had a pretty good quarter compared to their... Sort of immediate peers, and um, they, I think, they have organic revenue growth of about fifteen percent, uh, which outpaced um, uh, deco, which is the number two globally. Um, so it's really a quarter where um, they continued the strong trend they've been seeing previously. Uh, but it's quite an interesting time, given that there's a lot of uncertainty globally from an economic perspective. So while um, the first quarter was pretty strong for Randstad and the group, um, and their question marks for the outlook.
5: So, talk to us just about staffing in Europe here. I mean, in the States, I don't think anybody's coming back to the office here. I mean, this, you know, the the train into the city on the weekends is packed. Everybody's going to restaurants and bars and games. But during the no week, come Monday morning, come get Monday it. morning, it's me and a couple of crickets. So, talk to us about staffing in Europe. How is it trending there?
4: So,
1: um, I think I think it'll maybe be quite similar. So, so we we're, we're all coming back from the pandemic sort of slowly, I guess. Um, but what's interesting from an employment point of view or from a staffing company point of view is that it doesn't really matter where we work as long as we're working. Um, and I think um, one of the key things that's going on at the moment is that the employment data, whether it's in the US or whether it's in Europe and the UK for example, is actually quite strong. So unemployment is at 50 year lows in the UK and it's not far off that in the US. Um, I, I think uh, 20 basis points less of an unemployment rate and you'll be at 1969 lows. So the data is good people maybe have changed their way of working but are still working it's just maybe working more from home as you say um than than, than in the office as, as we kind of rebalance after the pandemic um but yeah that is a similar trend i would say in europe
4: so what companies or what regions maybe depending on which you think it has the stronger data um are really hiring right now and where do you see any pauses
1: So um, I would say so. This is the intriguing thing about the first quarter set of results, which which I I wrote about. Um, Essentially, all regions are recovering pretty well. Um, The U.S. is probably the strongest um, sort of large market in terms of employment growth um, currently. Um, The UK is also very strong, and this is sort of a recovery after the pandemic. Um, Europe has been a bit more patchy because there were some sort of more onerous restrictions in the first part of the year in places like France, um, as the Omicron variant was sort of, you know, um, led to some lockdown restrictions and so on. But we're we're kind of moving through that at the moment and coming out of that. So I would say on a broad level... um, employment is doing well. But the question mark is, you know, given what's happening globally with, um, you know, the the Ukraine situation with inflation going up, um, will there be a recession later in the year? And that's kind of what the share prices or stock prices are telling us, but not necessarily the first quarter earnings or the data so far.
5: Ishan, post-Brexit, is London still the cool, fun, desired place to go Mm -hmm. for young people? Uh, The UK in general, London in particular, as it's always been for pan Europe and other parts of the world?
1: Um, I would say it's probably maybe uh, too early to sort of conclude um, definitively what will be, um, you know, the final verdict on that. Um, What I would say, and also we've obviously had the pandemic for two years, so that's kind of, you know, taken over all of the trends and and so on and so forth. Um, Given the strength of the UK um, sort of employment data, um, the sort of the economic recovery we're seeing, um, you know, since the pandemic, there's no real sign that London has necessarily suffered. Um, you know, uh, from Brexit per se, but I, I think that trend will, will only really reveal itself in, in in the longer term. But up to now, there's no discernible you know effect on London
4: particularly. Um, let's talk about it from the company perspective. Um, in terms of staffing companies, like which one is doing the best, which one's making the most money, kind of staffing everybody else.
1: So, um, so there's two there's two groups of staffing companies. They're the large global players, and they're sort of the sort of slightly smaller, more niche players. So within the larger group, Randstad, as we talked about, is the one that's doing the best, um, you know, grew by 15%. Um, it's a pure play on staffing, so it doesn't have other parts to its business. Um, and its immediate peers, which are Deco and Manpower Group, are currently digesting acquisitions, which Randstad isn't doing. So it's kind of you know, uh, benefiting from a pure focus on staffing. Um, on, from the smaller sort of niche group, um, I would say Robert Half uh, in the U.S., Um, has been doing fantastic people and has seen significant um, top-line growth um, of of in excess of 30% um, in in the first quarter. Um, So that would be the one I would say is benefiting. Um, So so the smaller names tend to grow faster than the larger names at the moment. And within the smaller group, proper half, is is probably um, seems the most resilient.
4: All right, Ashan, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Ashan Torbali, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Commercial Services Analyst.
5: And that's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries.
4: And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through B.I. Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
5: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg.
7: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Nyko.
2: And I'm Skip Bronson.